in Israel. Uh, there is always something special about the first time, just like a first love. But the hope would be that it would grow on you and you would uh, get very, very attached. And uh, hopefully uh, every Jew should look at Eretz Yisrael as their home, whether they live here the whole year or they do not. And um, one of many, many trips, and perhaps one day you will, in fact, uh, decide to live here, just as uh, my wife and I decided 12 years ago. Actually, my wife decided, but I went along with it uh, to, to uh, move here 12 years ago. And it's been a challenge. I'm not going to tell anybody that it's necessarily easy, but uh, no pain, no gain is not only for weightlifting, but it's for life as well, that it's often the struggles and the difficulties that give us the most precious gifts. Same thing as for marriage, you know, raising children. The work that you put into something is commensurate to the benefit that you will, you will take out of it. So uh, it's always a challenge, you know, uh, the class that we have is an ongoing class that literally goes from year to year to year to year to year. But I was told that because uh, we only have like three sessions, I think, with the uh, new people, I should try to do something that we can cover in just three sessions. I gotta, gotta figure out kind of a, some self-contained unit that I didn't necessarily cover uh, with uh, the regular people. So I thought that we would do uh, some aspects of, of the Rambam in which he talks about uh, two, two different topics, but both of which are interesting. One is the Noahide Code, if you're familiar with that, and the other is the uh, concept of Mashiach and uh, the world to come. And what does Judaism say about Mashiach and what does Judaism say about the world to come? Um, I'm going to be very uh, apolitical or non-political about this. I'm not going to apply it to some contemporary issues that Chabad uh, grapples with and the like, but I just want to kind of go over what the Rambam says. So anything that you hear, you'll be able to check against what the Rambam actually says about all of these matters. Now you might wonder, uh, what's so big about the Rambam? Why am I telling you what the Rambam says? Who cares what the Rambam says? Uh, per se, so a little biography. I'm sure most of you have heard of the Rambam. Rambam is an abbreviation uh, for the name of a rabbi, Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon. Uh, he lived in the 1100s, he lived in the 12th century. Uh, he was born in Spain, uh, but as a young man fleeing Islamic persecution, he spent most of his life in Egypt. Uh, he did visit Eretz Israel once, and he, of course, is buried in Eretz Israel. When you go up to Tzfat, so on the way to Tzvat, you will pass by the beautiful uh, city of Tiberia. And I don't know if you'll stop there or not, but in Tiberia, there's a cemetery as well. And in the cemetery of Tiberia is buried uh, the Rambam and Rabbi Akiva and Rav Moshe Chaim Lutzato, three very great, great rabbis of very, very different uh, times. And uh, the Rambam uh, had really three different careers. He has a triple header, trifecta. Uh, the Rambam was considered to be one of the greatest authorities of Jewish law, and his code of Jewish law is still widely studied. In fact, even though in some sense it was superseded by a later work that we call the Shulchan Aruch, which is kind of the definitive code of Jewish law, but the Rambam is still the most complete code we ever had because the Shulchan Aruch only covers those laws that we keep today. So in the Shulchan Aruch, we don't have the laws of sacrifices and various other things. Maimonides' code includes absolutely everything. Sacrifices and laws of purity and impurity and the like. 
So uh, he's known as the, one of the greatest halachic decisors in our history. Number two, he was also a very eminent physician, one of the great doctors of the Middle Ages. And in fact, he wrote many, many works on medicine. Now, as you would expect, unlike Torah, in which the later generations are treated as inferior to the earlier ones, when it comes to science and technology, we often advance. But still, even in the realm of medicine, a lot of the Rambam's teachings are still very relevant. I'll just mention two teachings of the Rambam as a doctor, not as a rabbi. Uh, he talks about the idea, the importance of, of physical exercise as preventing uh, illnesses, and he talks about the importance of diet. And he says that if a person follows a proper diet and exercises, he will be protected from most illnesses that could cause a shortening of life expectancy. Now, that absolutely is solid advice that uh, should be followed, whether we follow it or not, it's another thing, but it should be followed even today, and the Rambam recognized that uh, 800 years ago. Uh, his third career was he is treated as one of the greatest Jewish, not just Jewish, one of the greatest religious philosophers. Now that's different than a master of halacha. There are rabbis who master the intricacies of Jewish law, but they're not necessarily philosophically minded. And there are philosophers who don't really know all of the texts of Jewish law. The Rambam was a rare combination who combined an extreme knowledge of great detail of every single in and out of Jewish law based on the Talmud, and at the same time was a great student of Aristotelian philosophy, which was the philosophy of the Middle Ages, and he formulated a Jewish approach to the problems that Aristotle mentioned. So thus, his code of Jewish law, his halachic code, is called Mishneh Torah. Now, Mishneh Torah literally means the duplication of the Torah. Don't confuse that with Mishnah, the Mishnah, Mishnah Torah. Now, why did he call it Mishnah Torah? Because he basically said that all you need are two books to know the totality of the legal structure of Judaism. You have to have a Chumash, the five books of Moses, which is called the written Torah. And then he will give you in the Mishnah Torah all of the final halachic rulings of what we call the oral tradition. And therefore you have the written Torah and you have the oral Torah and therefore together you have the whole Torah. Now that sounds really nice but you should know that the Rambam got a lot of flack for that title because essentially what the Rambam is saying is that let's, let, let's take here, I have, to give, I have to give you a little introduction and maybe I'm repeating what some other people have said. You know, we have the Talmud. Now the Talmud is hundreds and hundreds of years of discussions over the laws of the Torah. And it's a lot of debates, questions, answers. And you can study the Talmud. If you do, if you do one page of the Talmud a day, it'll take seven and a half years to finish. That's how big the Babylonian Talmud is. And then there's the Jerusalem Talmud and the like. Now the thing about the Talmud is the Talmud is written in the form of debate and discussion. It does not give you a final answer to things. But the concept would be by learning the debates, by learning the discussions, by learning the ins and the outs, you'll understand which direction you're supposed to go. Maimonides wrote his codification because he saw that for many, many people, they were just either they didn't have the ability to learn Talmud 
or even if they learned Talmud, it kind of <laughs> ran them around in circles. They didn't, I don't know if maybe, I understand you learned Gemara too, so you know the feeling a little bit. You're kind of, and I tell you, I've been learning Gemara for many years, and I, I still have that feeling. Sometimes you walk away from a Gemara, and your head is just spinning. You're just reeling. Like, you know, you have five interpretations of five different positions, and each position has multiple interpretations. So Maimonides said, I'll tell you what, guys. I'll just give you the final answer. I'll tell you what the answer is. So you don't need to go through the whole process. Now, that sounds great, but a lot of people were critical of Maimonides. They said, hey, are you trying to replace the Talmud? Do you think you're greater than the Talmud? And anyway, just because you think this is the final answer, who says you're right? I mean, the Talmud gives you all the raw material, and people come up with different final answers. But be it as it may, Maimonides' goal was to simplify by giving me the final answer. And therefore, he said, you would have the Chumash, the five books of Moses, for the written Torah, and my work for all of the rulings that emerge from the oral traditions that are essentially now in writing in the Talmud, the Mishnah, and, and the like, the Babylonian Talmud, the Jerusalem Talmud, and the like. So that's why he called it Mishnah Torah. Now there's another name that his code has, which is not the name that he gave to it, but people gave it a name, the, the printers or the publishers, and that was called Yad HaChazaka. Yad HaChazaka means the strong hand. And this is not his name, but this is a name that is given to it. You'll notice on the cover here, says Mishnah Torah. That's Maimonides' title. But Yad HaChazaka, if you look at the cover page, for example, this is not canonical, it's just a cover page. You see? Sefer Mishnah Torah, the book Mishnah Torah, who, which is also called Yad HaChazaka, the strong hand, right? That's the second secondary title. And that comes from the idea that at the very end of the Torah, at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, the end of the Torah that we read on Simcha's Torah, it talks about Moshe Rabbeinu. There was never anyone like Moshe Rabbeinu with his mighty hand that he did for Israel, like all that he did for Israel. So the pun would be that the Rambam's own first name was Moshe. And he too had a mighty hand. And that was his codification, meaning he's kind of drawing a comparison between Moshe ben Maimon and Moshe Rabbeinu, kind of almost like a second Moshe Rabbeinu in that way. Uh, so therefore, Yad is evocative of Yad at the end of Deuteronomy. And also, the word Yad, which means hand, the gematria of Yad, right? Gematria means every Hebrew letter has a number, like Aleph is one, just like A is one. So Yad is Yud Dalit. So Yud is 10, and Dalit is 14, uh, is four. So together it equals 14. The Rambam wrote his code in 14 books. That does, that, that does not mean 14 volumes, but... Uh, he divided his code into 14 books. It's typically printed in six volumes. That's just a matter of, I mean, you can even get it in one volume. But 14 books, and that's the Yad. Uh, there was a saying about Moshe, about the Rambam, who was so great. And the saying goes, Mi Moshe ad Moshe, lo kam kamosha. From Moshe to Moshe, there was nobody like Moshe. So what does that mean? From Moshe Rabbeinu, 
to Moshe ben Maimon, there was nobody as great as Moshe. And he, that's how great he was considered. Yeah. Um, when when people, you said that people were against him writing the Mishnah Torah because yeah. a people will stop learning Gemara and then. Like, what was his counter-argument to that? Why did he say that? His counter-argument was that, number one, uh, he would assume that any rabbi that was a real Talmud Chacham would not just follow rulings, but would always go back to the Gemaras. And he wrote it to make things simpler for people who were not able to go back to the Gemaras, right? In other words, the Rambam wrote it. See, in this sense, I I say something which may, may sound very irreverent, so I always feel a little guilty saying it. That is, the Mishnah Torah is a magnificent accomplishment, a magnificent accomplishment. But in terms of the Rambam's own objective, it was a failure. I mean, I hate to say it because it sounds really bad. The Rambam's objective was to make halacha simple. So you don't have to go through the morass of different opinions and questions and answers. I want to give you a bottom line. But what happened was, when the Rambam wrote this attempt to keep things simple, we then have all the commentaries that raise questions and answers, and go, in other words, they re-complicate it again. So the Rambam's code is widely, widely, widely studied for 800 years, but it didn't accomplish the idea of simplicity. Right, so, I mean, I hate to say it this way because God forbid it sounds irreverent, but I actually think it's true. This is a magnificent accomplishment that we continue to learn and, and benefit from all the time. But in terms of the actual stated goal that the Rambam had, he did not accomplish it. Did you want to say? Um, you try to make the Mishnah easier or the Torah easier, you said? Okay. Uh, I, I, he tried to make the halachic system easier. Now, the halachic system does include the Torah, now, I don't, when I say easier, I don't mean to make it easier to do. <laughs> yeah, I mean easier, easier to grasp and understand. He didn't try to make concessions or anything yeah, yeah. like that. He was not a reformer or whatever, but whatever it would be. Okay, so that's the Yad HaChazakah, Mishnah Torah. Great, great, great work. And uh, not only is it uh, comprehensive, it includes everything, which the Shulchan Aruch does not include, but also the Rambam was a master stylist. His language is so clear and so well organized, you know, so it's still something that, uh, in fact, you know, Mechabad has a project in which they actually encourage people to learn at different levels, uh, either a chapter, three chapters, some people, three chapters is extremely difficult, but some people do three chapters so they could finish the whole Maimonides Code in a year. One chapter is not easy either, but it would take three years to do it, whatever it would be, because it's still a magnificent, uh, project. Uh, you will notice. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Just one quick question. Yeah. Um, I'm interested in the context of Mishnah Torah and Shulchan Aruch and um, Talmud. Where okay. does the, like, the codified law? Um, how does it hold today? Are there? Is it generally widely accepted? The conclusions that he drew from Talmud, or are there? You said there was okay, so, so here's the thing. Um, you, you are correct that uh, after the Talmud comes a literature that is called codification. The Talmud does not codify. The Talmud gives you discussions, debates, many, many, many opinions. 
that the Talmud almost seems disinterested sometimes, or uninterested, in giving you an answer. In fact, it's common, not that it's a good thing. If you're learning Gemara, and there's a whole debate, and you ask your teacher, so what's the halacha? What do we do? The teacher might actually tell you, that's not under discussion right now. We're not interested in what do you do. That's a different, that's a different subject. We're here just to discuss the issue. Kind of an odd uh, answer to things. So you are correct that after the Talmud was completed, now when was the Talmud completed? Let's, let's, let's get the years here. The Talmud was completed approximately, approximately the year 600. Okay? Before the Islamic conquest, meaning the Talmud is a pre-Islam creation. Now shortly after the Talmud, we have various attempts to codify, to give us final answers. So... I'm not going to mention every possible code. There were codes before Maimonides and there are codes after Maimonides. But let's just state, the Rambam was one very, very influential code. And the Rambam's code is around 1190, you know, the end of the 1100s. Then we have the Shulchan Aruch, which is around the 14, 1500s, like 300 years later. Uh, and then we have, you know, more modern than we have in Chabad. Chabad has the Alter Rebbe, the Rav Shneur Zalman, wrote a revision of the Shulchan Aruch in the 1700s called uh, Shulchan Aruch Harav, the Shulchan Aruch of the Rebbe, etc., which is also very, very authoritative. Now, in terms of who do you follow and what do you follow, it very much depends. The Shulchan Aruch is considered to be definitive, meaning the Shulchan Aruch supersedes the Rambam in terms of final halacha, but you have to understand that Rav Yosef Kara, who wrote the Shulchan Aruch, usually does follow the Rambam. So in a sense, the Rambam has entered the final halacha through Rav Yosef Kara in the Shulchan Aruch. But here is the thing. Rav Yosef Kara's Shulchan Aruch is followed by Sfardim. Ashkenazim had a great rabbi add things to the Shulchan Aruch. And this rabbi is Rav Moshe Iserlis of Krakow, Poland. And uh, Rav Moshe Israelis tends to not follow the Rambam. So I can put it this way to keep it very simple. That is, Svardim are much closer to the Rambam's rulings, and Ashkenazim will often not follow the Rambam's rulings. Okay, that's how it works, because Rav Yosef Karo follows the Rambam, Rav Moshe Israelis followed the Baleatosvos in France and Germany, right, I, again, I'm sorry, one thing leads to another just in terms of basic definition. Who are Svardim and who are Ashkenazim? So really, it starts off with geographical distinctions. And that is, the Jewish communities in North Africa, Syria, Iraq, and Iran developed certain procedures in halakha and they became known as Sfardim, which is a strange name for them, actually, because Sfarad actually means Spain. Now, you'll notice that all the countries I mentioned of Sfardim are not from Spain. I had mentioned North Africa and Iraq, Iran, Syria, and Turkey. Those are the Sfardic countries. So why on earth are they called Sfardim? Uh, the short answer is they're not really from Sfarad, but what happened was that... Uh, these are his countries that were conquered by Islam and many migrated to Spain, as it were, during the various Islamic uh, conquests. Now, Ashkenazim, 
Ashkenazaki means Germany. Germany is Ashkenaz, but Ashkenazim covers what you would call the Christian countries of Europe. This would be Poland, Russia, Hungary, Germany, France, then later England, and the United States, of course, is a conglomerate of different things, right? So basically, these are geographical differences, but what happened was, for various reasons, which are very, very interesting, all of them except the Talmud as definitive. The Talmud is the, the Torah and the Talmud are the sources of halacha. Nobody questions that. But there were different interpretations of the Talmud and different opinions in the Talmud. Right? Two different things. The Talmud has many opinions and there are different ways of interpreting each opinion. So what happened was over hundreds of years, over, over a number of centuries, the Ashkenazic countries tended to develop one set of interpretations and the Sephardic countries tended to develop another set of interpretations. Now, I don't want to exaggerate this. In truth, it's the same religion. It's the same religion. And, you know, 85% or more is going to be the same. Shabbos and kosher and tefillin and talit, you know, all of those things are the same. It's not like two different religions. But there might be, you know, 15% of different halachic rulings on different, on different things, right? Ashkenazim and Sephardim. So the Rambam represents kind of the source of authority for Sephardim, because that got passed down to Rabbi Yosef Karo, and uh, Ashkenazim followed the rulings of Rav Moshe Iserlis, who added them, right? Shulchan Aruch literally means the set table, and the Rav Moshe Iserlis's comments are called the tablecloth, the mapa. And uh, it kind of doubled the size of the Shulchan Aruch by putting in the Ashkenazic customs of Germany, France, Hungary, uh, Poland, Russia, and, and the like. Okay, so here in Israel, just like the United States, we have an amalgamation. We have Ashkenazim, we have Sephardim. Now later, later, after the Shulchan Aruch, you got a new division between Hasidim and Misnagdim, but that, that, that came later. And now Hasidim are essentially Ashkenazim, right? I mean, there aren't that many Sephardic Hasidim. I mean, Hasidim come from Poland, Russia, Lithuania, right? those are the Hasidic, Hungary, those are the Hasidic countries. But what they did was they did adopt some Sephardic customs based on, the, based on Kabbalah, which they got from the Ari, right? So that's why in the Hasidic world, you have a little bit of a mixture of Ashkenazic and Sephardic customs. Okay. Uh, again, I'm, uh, I, I know this is probably very confusing because uh, each, each of these points could be elaborated upon in a very, very lengthy way. But the bottom line, therefore, is this. When we study Rambam, we're not necessarily studying Rambam for practical halachic guidance, especially if you're Ashkenazic, because we may not follow the Rambam for practical halachic guidance. But we study the Rambam because of the organizational structure in which he lays out an area of halakha and he explains it, right? So sometimes you learn a halakhic book, not so much, this may sound a little strange, not so much to know exactly what to do, but to understand an area. And the Rambam is superior to the Shulchan Aruch in that way because the Shulchan Aruch was simply concerned with giving you a rule the Rambam gives you rules also, although we don't always follow his rules, but the Rambam was also concerned with organizational, organization and structure. 
I mean, that's why, for example, the, the Rebbe made, when the Rebbe encouraged people to learn Rambam, why didn't he encourage? I mean, he didn't make a plan to learn Shulchan Aruch, although he, he was not against that, because Shulchan Aruch will give you a lot of rules, but but you know, to, to learn a million rules doesn't give you a pattern. It doesn't give you a picture, and the Rambam was very great in giving you a cognitive map, giving you a picture of a halachic system, even if there are particulars where at least Ashkenazim are not always going to follow it. Right? So that was the... So once again, I guess I'm coming back to the same point. The Rambam's tremendous success was not in the sense of his own objectives. His own objectives was to give you a definite rule that you're going to follow and keep it simple. He was not successful in that, but he achieved success in another way that his work has still learned so much to understand the basis of a halachic structure. Okay? So this is the Mishneh Torah, Yada Chazaka. And as I say, there are some areas of halacha where you can only get it from the Rambam. If I want to know the laws of sacrifices, I can't get it from the Shulchan Aruch. If I want to know the laws of agriculture that apply to the land of Israel, like the laws of Shemitah, I'm not going to get it from the Shulchan Aruch. I'm only going to get it in the Rambam. If I want to know about the laws of Mashiach, which we'll look at, which is a little odd, I'll only get that from the Rambam, not in the Shulchan Aruch. If I want to know about the seven laws of Noah, which we're going to look at, I only get that from the Rambam. So there are areas in which you only get from the Rambam to this very day, you're not going to get it from the other coast. Okay, is, is that the, at least the vaguely clear in terms of codification and, and, and the like? Okay. Now, the Rambam's uh, second career, great, great doctor, uh, now again, as Jews, we're not so interested in his medical career, but he was a very, very eminent physician. Uh, and there's an interesting story about how he became a physician. Uh, it's a little sad in many, many ways. Uh, the Rambam was obviously a very brilliant man from the time he was very young. And uh, the Rambam had a brother, a younger brother, whose name was David, David ben Maimon. And David ben Maimon was a jewel merchant. He sold, bought and sold jewels, diamonds, rubies. And uh, he supported the Rambam. He recognized that the Rambam deserved to devote all of his time to learning Torah and writing books. So he supported the Rambam. The Rambam didn't have to worry about Parnassah. Uh, tragically, uh, David ben Maimon died at sea, died at a, a storm in the Indian Ocean. And he literally died. And this was a triple, a quadruple whammy First of all, the Rambam lost a very, very beloved brother. The Rambam said that uh, this was like a son to him. He was a younger brother. And, and the Rambam says he was so devastated at the death of his brother that he almost died. And he says he was bedridden for more than a year. He could not get out of bed for more than a year. So he lost his dearly beloved brother. Second, he lost his economic support. He had no, he had no uh, way of making a living. Third, uh, his brother left a widow and a young child. And the Rambam, as the only sibling, felt a responsibility not to marry the widow. He was, he was, he was married, but, but to take care of the widow and to raise the, raise the child. So because of this, the Rambam had to take a job. He had to work. <laughs> and uh, the profession he chose was medicine. So he did not become a doctor until his brother died. So the Rambam was already in his... Uh, 40s 
when he became a doctor. Now, in those days, you didn't go to medical school. How did you become a doctor in those days, in the 11th? You didn't go to medical school for eight years. There were no medical schools. Essentially, you apprenticed, and, uh, you know, uh, there wasn't any big licensing, you know, when you felt you were ready, you were ready, and uh, nobody, you know, raised any questions. Uh, but the Rambam was so skilled that he, the Rambam lived in Cairo, and uh, the sultan, the sultan in Cairo, the head of the, the king, so to speak, of Egypt, the Islamic king, made the Rambam the physician for the royal court. Now, this was not an easy job. The royal court comprised several hundred people, and the Rambam had to spend the whole day in the palace ministering to every, anybody who needed, needed anything. And uh, he discussed the idea that he would leave his home early in the morning. He would not come home till two hours after nightfall. And when he came home, there would be a line of people waiting to see him. Some people had halakhic questions. Some people wanted money. Some people had medical questions. And the Rambam was, had been working like 14 hours. He comes. And he just begged them, let him eat something for five minutes. And then he spent the next two hours dealing with the people. And all of his great works, he only began to write after a whole day working as a physician and two hours interacting with people. And then he was able to write. So just that, that makes the genius of what he did much, much, much greater than you would assume. That's why it's always a little, little bit of a joke. The Rambam describes uh, the importance of sleep in the Mishnah Torah. He says every person should have eight hours of sleep. It's very, very clear the Rambam did not have, never had eight hours of sleep. Uh, but nevertheless, well, I guess uh, that's the old saying, physician, heal yourself, or whatever it is. The doctor can't follow his own medical advice, and the Rambam was not able to follow his own uh, medical, medical advice. Uh, but that's the Rambam's, uh, so you see, obviously, if he was made uh, the, the royal physician, obviously that was a position of great, great prominence, and that's a testimony to his skill as a doctor. Uh, his third career is philosophy, and this is his other great book. Mishneh Torah was written first. His last book is Guide to the Perplexed, which is called Moreh. Nevuchim, which is simply Hebrew for Guide to the Perplexed. Actually, he did not write it in Hebrew. He wrote it in Arabic, and it was translated, unlike Mishneh Torah that he did write in Hebrew. And uh, the Guide to the Perplexed, who are the perplexed, right? Guide to the confused, Guide to the perplexed. Who are the perplexed? The perplexed were philosophically sophisticated people, which meant they knew Aristotelian philosophy, and they couldn't reconcile the teachings of Judaism with the logical tenets of Aristotelian philosophy. And instead of Maimonides simply saying, oh, Aristotle is garbage, don't, don't bother with it, the Rambam attempted to find understandings of Judaism that would be consistent with the overall philosophical structure of, of Aristotle. Now, that's not to say he doesn't argue with Aristotle. There are many places he does argue with him, but he, but he works within the Aristotelian system. Now, you may notice that although in yeshivos and in seminaries we study the Mishnah Torah a lot, we tend not to study 
the guide to the perplexed that much. In fact, as far as I can tell, quickly, I don't think you have a guide to the perplexed on the shelf. Maybe I'm wrong. You have a Mishnah Torah on the shelf, but not, and I can certainly tell you, in a typical yeshiva study hall, you'll have many, many copies of the Mishnah Torah. It'll be hard to find even one copy of the Guide to the Perplexed. Uh, it's, it's still a magnificent book, but it's not studied that much. You know, why is that so? It's a complicated question, really. Some didn't like the whole endeavor of studying philosophy, like philosophy dealers, prove to me there's a God. Let's go through the proofs. Some say it's better not to do that because uh, once you start trying to prove something, then people might, you know, not accept your proof, etc. In other words, uh, faith might be better based on emotional acceptance and not necessarily philosophical argumentation. Yeah, I'm not going to debate the issue per se, but this is historically why there was a certain reluctance to engage in the Guide to the Perplexed because it is trying to kind of prove the Torah through the tenets of Aristotelian analytical philosophy. And some say that could take you in a dead end, that could actually lead you away from God instead of bringing you to God. That was one aspect of it. Another aspect of it is that even in terms of philosophy, the types of philosophical questions that people have today are not necessarily the ones that Aristotle was grappling with. I mean, some of you might have read uh, some of Aristotle's works uh, in college or, or whatever it is. You know, the, they had certain philosophical questions come and go with the passage of time, meaning different generations have different types of questions. And sometimes the older, I'm talking about secular philosophy, the older philosophical works are not necessarily addressing the existentialist questions that people have today, right? It's a little difficult. So for whatever reason, I'm not at all discouraging you. If you, if you want to look at the Guide to the Perplex, go ahead and do it. But uh, as they say, it tends not to be uh, a major subject of, of study. But uh, it did have a tremendous influence, uh, not only in Jewish philosophy. Uh, for example, the Tanya brings it sometimes, even though it's very much very different than Kabbalah, but the Tanya tries to synthesize the mystical world of the Arizal, with the philosophical world of the Rambam, Morinabuchim, right, that synthesis, which some say is an uneasy synthesis, but he tries to bring them, bring them together. And uh, the Guide to the Reflex also had an influence, not that it's important for us, but in the Catholic Church, uh, Thomas Aquinas actually uh, quotes and ex explains, comments on Maimonides' Guide to the Perplex. So it was considered to be a genuine work of, of not just Jewish philosophy, but of religious philosophy, how, how, how you can establish a God and a creator in a framework of logical, philosophical categories, right? Guide to the perplexed, Mora Nebuchim. Now, Maimonides himself was a great admirer of Aristotle. He, I mean, he, he said that Aristotle reached the highest level of understanding that a human being can reach short of being a prophet of God. He reached the highest level of intellect. And there are, frankly, sections in Maimonides that are based on Aristotle. Uh, so when he talks about um, the spheres, the planets, his description of the st structure of the universe is actually taken from Aristotle. When he talks about the golden mean, this is a very famous teaching of the Rambam that one should endeavor not to go to extremes. Don't be too generous, don't be too stingy, 
you have to find the middle. That, I mean, it's true, it's a truth, but it happens to be from Aristotle, right? So Maimonides was willing to take from Aristotle as well. And he himself cited the aphorism that one should be willing to accept the truth from whatever source it, uh, whatever source it comes. Okay, so, that's, so uh, those are the three careers, the trifecta of Maimonides' career, uh, halachic authority, great physician, and great rational philosopher, and the like. Maimonides was not a Kabbalist, per se, and there's still a debate whether he knew Kabbalah and whatever reason rejected it, or he was not aware of this Chachma, it was not yet the time to reveal it. There are many, many different uh, debates about the Rambam and Kabbalah, but, but it's, a fa- it's fairly clear to say that at least in his writings he does not espouse ideas that would be known as Kabbalistic ideas. And as I mentioned uh, a few mo- moments ago, the Alter Rebbe and other people, they tried to synthesize, they tried to bring Kabbalah ideas and merge them with Maimonides' rational uh, philosophy. Okay, so uh, the reason why, uh, this was was a very long-winded answer uh, to a question of uh, why am I learning Rambam with you? Because Rambam is something good to learn and the the topics that he addresses that we're going to look at are not addressed by any other code, so it's worthwhile uh, to look at them. Now, in particular, oh yes, one final thing. Uh, If the Rambam lived in Cairo, uh, so why is he buried uh, here in Israel? Well, that's not such a kasha. Even to this very day, uh, even people who die outside of Israel, they want the spiritual merit of being buried in Eretz Israel. So the fact that he's buried in Israel, I mean, it was a more difficult trip in those days, but Egypt to Israel is not so far. And uh, he wanted the zechus, the merit of being buried in Eretz Israel. But here's a kasha, though. If you're going from Cairo, to Israel, you're going to hit Yerushalayim. I mean, Tiberia is pretty far north, as you will see. So why would he be buried in Tiberia? Wouldn't the logical stop be Jerusalem? Jerusalem is a holier city. There are, our tradition has it, again, forgive me for digressing, it's, it's what I tend to do. Um, there are four holy cities in Eretz Israel. All, all of Eretz Israel is holy, but there are four specially holy cities. There's Yerushalayim, there's Hebron, there's Tiberia, there's Tzfat. These are called the four holy cities of Eretz Israel. They correspond to the four elements. Yerushalayim is city of fire. Uh, Hebron is city of dirt. Tiberia, which is on the Yam Kinneret, the Sea of Galilee, is the city of water. And Tzfat, which is mystical, ethereal, is the city of air, wind. Yeah, Yerushalayim is the city of fire, passion, excitement, argumentativeness. I once took a cab from Tzfat to Yerushalayim, and we got here like 8 o'clock in the morning, and the horns are blaring incessantly, and the cab driver told me he was a driver in Tzfat for 50 years. He never once used his horn, and he said that he has heard more horns in five minutes than he heard in 50 years in Svat. So Yerushalayim is the city of fire. Um, okay, but be it as it may, uh, all the cities are holy, but Yerushalayim is the holiest. 
So why wouldn't the Rambam be buried in Jerusalem? Why would he be buried in Tiberia? That's not the, that's not an obvious that's not an obvious place. So they tell the story. These things might be legends. I, I, I can't say that they're historical facts. They tell the story that uh, his coffin was being carried on a wagon that was being led by oxen. And when they reached Jerusalem, the people who were leading it wanted to turn the oxen into uh, Jerusalem. And the oxen refused. They couldn't be moved. They were, they, they were determined to keep on going. And they couldn't be stopped till they went all the way to Tiberia. Meaning the oxen, Hashem made the oxen go all the way to Tiberia. Now, why would that be? What's so special about Tiberia? Because Tiberia is where the last Sanhedrin met. The Sanhedrin was in Jerusalem, but then the temple was destroyed in the year 70. And Jerusalem was destroyed. So where did the Sanhedrin go? They went to the Galil, they went up north. And Tiberia was the last place of the Sanhedrin before it was abolished eventually. And the Rambam was considered to be like the successor because the Sanhedrin are the, those who explain the oral law and the Rambam explains the oral law and therefore he is connected to the Sanhedrin and that's why he's buried uh, up, up in, in Tiberia. Okay, that's, uh, that's, where the story, that's where the story goes. Okay, yeah. I said I didn't hear you. Which people? The people in Egypt. You mean the non the non Jews? Yeah. What they called the Rambam? Yeah. Oh, oh, what was his Egyptian? You know, I don't know. That's interesting. You know, it's interesting that the Ramban, Rav Moshe ben Nachman, who lived in Catholic Spain, actually did have a Spanish name. We actually know that uh, he was called. Um, well, maybe I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Maybe it's Spanish or Arabic. I, I think it sounds like a Spanish name. The Ramban's name was like Bana Bana Sera or something. I was actually the name of somebody in the uh, Godfather. But okay. Uh, but uh, the Ramban must have had an Arabic name, but I don't know what it was. My would be like philosophy. No, no, my. Maimonides is a Latin name. Maimonides, E-D's, just means son of. So Maimonides is Latin, son of Maimon. So you can use Maimonides anytime you want to use it. It's not only for his philosophical. Uh, We call them them Rambam. And the English or the Latin is Maimonides. Just like Ramban, don't confuse them, Rav Moshe ben Nachman is called Nachmanides. Ralbag, Rab Levi ben Gershon, is called Gersonides. So the Edis, right? If any of you, if uh, say what? Rab Levi, I just, no, I, I mentioned, I just mentioned another rabbi. I hadn't, hadn't talked about him at all, but Rab Levi ben Gershon, uh, called Gersonides. So the Edis is always next to their father. So if any of you have, if you have a father, Avraham, you can be called uh, Abrahamides, right? So Edis is just. Uh, Right? So you can use it any time you want. You can use it for halachic purposes, philosophical purposes. So did Moshe have an, did the Rambam have an Arabic name? Almost certainly he did, but I don't know. But I'll tell you, the Arabic for Moshe is Musa. It's not so different. Musa, M-U-S-A, is the Arabic for, for Moshe. In fact, a lot of Arabic is, uh, Arabic is, is a Semitic language. Arabic is close to Hebrew. Um, 
You know, in modern Hebrew, all, all obscenities are Arabic. I mean, Hebrew has obscenities. But you should know they're not from the Hebrew language. Uh, all the swear words in Hebrew are Arabic words. You know, and the okay. A lot of things. Falafel is an Arabic word, by the way. You know, a, lot, a, lot of, uh, a lot of Arabic has corrupted, corrupted the, Hebrew, the Hebrew language. Okay. All righty. All righty. So, uh, so this is a little bit of an introduction so you have a sense of who the Rambam uh, was. And there were many other things he did as well. Uh, he wrote different letters to Jewish communities, which were very, very important letters. For example, Yemen was going through extreme Islamic persecution in which uh, hordes of these young Muslims were just going up to Jews and putting a knife to their neck and say, accept Allah or I'll slit your neck, slit your throat. And many Jews succumbed and they accepted Allah with no intention just to get this knife off their throat and the like. And uh, they were told by a rabbi that they're goyim, they're no longer Jewish and God doesn't care about them and they have no right to go to show, and they have no right to do mitzvahs, and they were heartbroken. And they turned to the Rambam for some response. Are we still Jewish? Does God still want us to do mitzvahs? And the Rambam was so angry at this rabbi. And he said, no, I mean, you could feel the wrath of the Rambam. And the Rambam comforted them. And the Rambam said, listen, you have to try to get out of there if you can. But still, you have to do whatever mitzvahs you can do. And every mitzvah is precious. And that gave such comfort and such strength to this Yemenite community, which is very far away from Egypt. Yemen is not next door. That they incorporated in the Kaddish. They changed their Kaddish. You know, the Kaddish says, uh, may God bring the redemption in your lifetime and in the lifetime of all of Israel. That, that's in the Kaddish. They put in, in your lifetime and the lifetime of all of Israel and in the lifetime of our master of Moshe ben Maimon. They actually changed the Kaddish to mention the Rambam in, their, uh, in the Kaddish. Uh, so that was a letter that literally saved the whole community. And so the Rambam did a lot of things like that. These public letters and other things that he did. So just a very, very amazing, amazing person. You know, have you heard of the Cairo Geniza? This is a very interesting point. A geniza is, you know, is simply where you put the sfarim or books when they're no longer usable. You don't throw them away, but you put them in a sacred burial place. So a lot of shuls will have geniza. It's called geniza, shameless geniza. So Cairo, where the Rambam lived, had a geniza that had been, people had been putting stuff there for a, th for a thousand years. Like, you know, just like a hole in the wall. Like, imagine you had a hole in this wall. And... You know, just people, people have been putting stuff behind the wall for a thousand years. Nobody, nobody ever bothered to look. So around the 1890s or so, a man, who actually was Orthodox, but later became known to be a great conservative rabbi, Salman Schechter. You may have heard of the Salman Schechter schools and whatever it is. Salman Schechter opened up the Cairo Geniza. I mean, imagine you're finding like, I mean, you couldn't even breathe. I mean, it was dust, paper, uh, a thousand years of stuff. And the stuff had disintegrated and they're still putting together pieces of paper or whatever parchment to try to pierce together documents. Still, like more than 150 years. Right, this is called the Cairo Geniza. It's a big, big source. I think everything has been taken out of the Geniza and it's divided, it's divided between Cambridge and Harvard, all the different 
universities have fragments and they're analyzing them. And they've published many, many things. So one of the things they found in the Cairo Geniza, they sometimes find actually personal letters. So there's a very cute personal letter that a man wrote to his wife, somehow it got in the Geniza, about coming to Cairo to meet the Rambam with his eight-year-old son. And it's such a cute because it gives you a side of the Rambam that you normally wouldn't think. Because you think of the Rambam as like this genius who was very austere, you know, never wasted time, you know, everything was halacha or philosophy or medicine. You know, you don't think of the Rambam as joking around a lot or whatever. Uh, but it says, he writes that it was such an honor, he went to meet the Rambam and he took his eight-year-old son and he said that the Rambam only had one child. He had uh, uh, Avram, one son, who became a great rabbi in his own. And when he entered the house, Avram, Rav Avram, told the person, listen, tell your son to call my father Saba, call him grandfather, because he loves when children call him grandfather. And uh, he told his son, and he says his son called the Rambam Saba, and the Rambam kissed him and hugged him and said, oh, I'm so happy to have you as my grandson. <laughs> and he gave him a candy, and he had lemon cake or whatever it is, the whole thing they described, the whole, whole thing. <laughs> and he said the Rambam was so nice and so friendly and so, you know, uh, what it was. It reminds me a little bit, but they have somewhat similar stories of the Rebbe sometimes, you know, the... Um, you know, the Rebbe uh, used to go home in the afternoon a little bit to spend time with his wife. Uh, you know, because he was at 7.70, you know, till 4 in the morning, but there was like uh, an hour or an hour and a half. He would come home and have a cup of tea with his Rebbetson. And uh, he used to say that uh, having tea with my Rebbetson is, is as important as putting on tefillin every day. He says, I got to do it. So what happened was that the Rebbetson, there, there were often people chassidim in the house uh, when, you know, um, you know, to do things for the rabbits and even talk to the rabbits and, you know, uh, so there were often people in the house. So whenever the Rebbe came home in the middle, they never knew when he would come home. They would, like, jump out of the window. They were so, like, they didn't want to invade the private time. They would just, like, you know, jump. And he would often say, why don't you sit, why don't you sit down? It was like, you could have tea with, you, you could have tea with us, too, you know, but uh, they, no one ever did it, but... Uh, but he said, you know, you can sit down. Well, you don't have to run away. I come home, you know, <laughs> whatever it would be. So the Rambam was that way as well. It was very, very welcoming. So it's good to see that other, that other side of the, uh, of the personality. Okay. So now uh, that's kind of an introduction. I hope it puts things in, in perspective. Uh, the section we're going to be looking at is actually, it is the 14th book of the Rambam. And... It is the last section of the 14th book. And it is called the law, very, and, very, and this is not, this is the whole thing is not in the Shulchan Aruch at all. This is called the laws of kings, kings, malachim, and the conduct of war. So this is an interesting thing. You wouldn't think that we would have in the code of Jewish law the laws of war and the laws of monarchy. Uh, it's not in the regular Shulchan Aruch, that's for sure. But here the Rambam actually talks about uh, what you might call the political laws of the Torah. Well, when is war justified? When is war not justified? What are the conditions for war? Uh, who is qualified to be a monarch or a king? What are the responsibilities of a king? What are the limitations of a king? Right, all of these different things. 
So at the end of the book of, right, right, so this is the 14th book. It's the last section of the 14th book. And we're looking at the last chapters of the whole work. And at the end of Hilchos Malachim, at the end of the discussion of the laws of kings, the Rambam moves to two topics. And the two topics, it's not readily apparent how are they connected to the laws of kings. Well, well, one topic is, one topic isn't. The first is, the Rambam talks about what are called the seven commandments of Noah. Uh, in English, we often call them the Noahide laws. And this is a very, very, very interesting overall concept in Judaism because Judaism teaches there are two legitimate pathways to God. See, no other religion says that. Christianity, which has many denominations, says there's only one way to connect to God, and that's the path of Jesus. Islam says the same thing. Judaism does not say Judaism is the only way you can connect to God. Indeed, if a non-Jew wants to convert, you know, eventually we welcome them, but initially we, we say, you don't have to do that. We don't actively proselytize. We don't seek converts. Again, if someone converts, we have to honor them and bring them into the community, of course. But that has to be their choice. We do not encourage proselytization. We do not encourage conversion. Not only do we not encourage it, we even go to some degree to discourage it. As we kind of test the sincerity a little bit. Say, ah, you don't really want to do that. Uh, now, don't you want uh, clam chowder or whatever it is, uh, cheeseburger? Uh, you know, a lot of good stuff. Right? And now, now, you might say, that doesn't make sense. If I believe Judaism is true, why should I want to deprive somebody else of living a life of truth. That's kind of perverse, right? But the answer is because Judaism believes that God gave more than one path to reach him. There is a path that is given to the Jewish people. But there is a path that Hashem gave to the non-Jew. And if the non-Jew follows that path, they get salvation. They get redemption. They get eternal life. Called Olam Abba, right? Whatever we get, they get. And that is a unique idea called the Noahide laws because according to our tradition, these laws were given to Noah after the flood. And therefore, since Noah was not Jewish, Noah was not Jewish, right? Abraham is the first Jew. So what was given to Noah represents the universal mandates of human beings. And then we have the Sinaitic revelation at Mount Sinai, which represents the particularistic responsibilities of the Jewish nation. Now, the responsibilities of the Jewish nation are much more onerous. 613 verses 7, although that's a little bit of an overstated, because we'll see that the seven themselves can have many, many subcomponents. So, if you're a non-Jew, you have no obligation to take on the 613. You can do the seven, and you can be a righteous Gentile who will have a share in the world to come. 
So this is the concept of the Noahide laws. We'll go over what they are in a, in a moment. But that's a very unique concept because that really highlights the idea that the path to God is a non-exclusive path. And there are multiple ways, or at least two ways, two different ways of reaching them. So if a non-Jew comes to me and says, I want to be Jewish, one thing I might discuss with them is, have you considered the Noahide laws? Now, in fact, if you Google our Noahide laws, you will actually see websites, some of which are actually maintained by Gentiles, meaning non-Jewish people, who are serious students and practitioners of the Noahide code. It's not just a Jewish thing. It's not just Jews that are saying non-Jews have to keep the seven universal laws. There are many non-Jews that are actively involved in keeping the Noahide laws. Now, interestingly, Maimonides does say we do have kind of a role. In other words, we don't encourage non-Jews to become Jewish. That's true. But we do have a role to promulgate and encourage observance of the Noahide laws. That's something that we can and should push in various ways, in non-coercive ways. I mean, nobody's saying, let's pass a law that you have, yeah. But at least in terms of education and persuasion. Now, I have to admit, most of the Jewish world does not actively pursue this agenda, meaning there are very, very few Jewish organizations that are actively promoting the Noahide code among Gentiles. But those of you uh, who are familiar with Chabad know that this was one, one of many, but one of the Rebbe's Mifzayim, one of the Rebbe's projects. He did have a project for the non-Jewish world, and that was the promulgation of the seven Noahide laws. Okay? So uh, Chabad was one of the few, not, not the only, but one of the few organizations that was actually involved in uh, a mission to the Gentiles, so to speak. Not to make them Jewish, but to make them aware of the seven Noahide laws. In fact, I believe uh, the Rebbe, I mean, he, he didn't come, he didn't go, obviously, but the Rebbe got an award from Congress for uh, his work in uh, humanitarian values, they call it, you know, they called it. Uh, I think Rabbi Shemto went down to pick up the award, you know, or whatever, I'm, I'm sure. Made a big difference to the Rebbe, but okay. <laughs> but whatever it was, but uh, he was honored uh, for his involvement in the Noahide, in the Noahide uh, code, okay? So that's itself is a very interesting point, and that's somewhat unique. In fact, uh, let me digress here for a moment. <laughs> I, I digress a lot. Um, I think I mentioned it to the regular, so forgive me if, if I'm repeating a little bit. Uh, but I think now you'll see a different uh, aspect of it. Uh, all of you are familiar with what's going on with, with Roe Ro versus Wade. Uh, in fact, uh, Justice Brett Kavanaugh, I think somebody wanted to murder him. I mean, his life was threatened uh, because of that. Uh, what's going on, just to remind people who don't have a big legal background, right? Roe versus Wade is a Supreme Court opinion that goes back to the 1970s, which basically gave women a constitutional right, a right under the U.S. Constitution to get an abortion like whenever they want, until, at least until the last trimester. And uh, this was based on the idea that a woman has a right of privacy, it is her body, etc., and therefore the state has no right to regulate or take away her freedom of choice. That's Roe versus Wade, 
And that actually means that states could not pass laws limiting or restricting abortion. And that was the law. Now, uh, conservatives never liked that. Again, I'm, I'm taking off my rabbi hat now. I'm putting on a lawyer hat. I'm going to talk for a few minutes about law. Right? So I'm not talking about Torah right now. Uh, conservatives didn't like that. Uh, pro-life didn't like that. The Catholic Church didn't like that. Uh, and uh, as uh, Trump basically said, that he's, he's going to appoint uh, judges on the Supreme Court that will overrule Roe versus Wade. And Trump managed to put three people on the Supreme Court, which really created a conservative majority on the Supreme Court. So what happened was, and this is the first time, first time in Supreme Court history this happened, this is really uh, an amazing thing, that a draft opinion, a draft opinion leaked. This never, ha this really never happened. A draft opinion leaked in which five justices, five out of four, so all you, five out of nine, so all you need are five. Five justices were prepared to simply overrule Roe versus Wade. Now it's a draft opinion, My, minds could change. But this indicates there are five judges who today would say, let's get rid of Roe versus Wade. Now, I'm gonna, again, I used to, I used to be a law professor, so I'm gonna, I wanna be sure my law students understand this. Uh, if you overrule, if the Supreme Court would overrule Roe versus Wade, does that mean abortion would become illegal? Depends. No, it does not. It does not. Although there are, isn't there the idea there are trigger laws? Like no, no. Certain states no, in other words, what it means is, if Roe versus Wade is overruled, every individual state will make its own decision. Yeah, you're right. So those states like Oklahoma, Texas, they pass trigger laws. But, 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 but in other words, it's by state by state. In other words, a liberal state like New York or California is going to be the same with Roe versus Wade or without Roe versus Wade. In other words, Roe versus Wade takes away the right of a state to restrict abortion. When you take away Roe versus Wade, every state makes its own decision. Some states are going to stay with abortion rights. In fact, most states probably will, but the probably southern, will, they will stay with abortion. Most states are not going to regulate, are not going to regulate abortion, which means Roe versus Wade Just is not going to change a majority of the country, but it will change some significant states, Texas, Oklahoma, Florida, uh, okay, but, but it's important, one, Florida, yeah, you're, you're correct. I mean, it, it, it certainly <laughs> will change will change states. But all I'm saying is, it doesn't force any state to prohibit abortion. It simply permits a state to prohibit abortion. In fact, some have argued that getting rid of Roe versus Wade is a more democratic thing to do because you're leaving it to the popular votes of every state to make its decision. In other words, some have argued, just in terms of political science, Roe versus Wade is anti-democratic because it doesn't allow states, a population, in other words, to vote. Okay, but that's, that's a whole philosophical issue. The whole idea of a Supreme Court is actually anti-democratic because the idea is you need to protect people against the excesses of majorities. I mean, there, there is a reason why a democracy has anti-democratic institutions. I mean, there is a, okay. All right, I don't want to, okay, so I, I finished my law professor talk. So now I just want to say the following. Uh, if you are a religious Jew, 
you are an Orthodox Jew. And generally speak, generally speaking, unless the mother's life is in danger, and maybe we'll talk a little bit about it, you know, we're, we're not in favor of abortion. As a general rule, if you ask, does Jewish law halachically uh, recognize abortion on demand, our, our short answer, it's a very short answer, is if the mother's life is in danger, for sure, but if the mother's life is not in danger, generally speaking, we are not in favor of abortion. So here's the question. If you go with that halachic postulate, should you be in favor of Roe versus Wade? Well, halacha is not black and white, so then you should be in favor of the one that's open to it, right? Because if you're going to live in a state such as Texas, you can Whoa, sorry. point out. But yeah. the state that will put you in prison or fine you or whatever it is just for knowing someone who a sentence. Right, so some have said, someone. so some have made the argument that if I'm a religious Jew, I'm better off with Roe versus Wade. Because Roe versus Wade says, I have the freedom, I, or the woman, I say, I say, I mean the woman, the woman has the freedom to make her decision without state interference. Well, if I'm a religious woman who follows halacha, I have the 100% freedom not to get an abortion, right? I, I follow halacha. If, on the other hand, you get rid of Roe versus Wade, and you have a strict abortion law, then there is the possibility, possibility, that a woman who halachically is allowed to get an abortion might get in legal trouble, or you know, whatever, because of a restrictive abortion law. So one would argue that I, as a religious Jew, would prefer a liberal abortion law because that gives me the choice to follow my religion without interference. interference. But the counter-argument is this. Abortion is prohibited, we'll see this, not only under the 613 mitzvot of the Torah, but abortion is prohibited under the Noahide Code. We'll see, it's, it's a subcategory of murder. If that's the case, since Maimonides writes, I have an obligation to promote the tenets of the Noahide Code in a non-Jewish society. So even if getting rid of Roe versus Wade might make life a little more difficult for me as a religious Jew, but by cutting down on abortions, I would be advancing the Noahide Code. And by advancing the Noahide Code, I'm fulfilling my obligation to promote Noahide morality. Right? That would be the other, the other side of the, of the coin. Yeah. Um, this is something I noticed at my school. I don't know if this, yeah. or I've heard other, but I just wanted a confirmation. Yeah. Um, it seems that more Orthodox, like Chabadnik Jews, do lean towards conservative, whereas like Hillel and like Reform are more liberal. Is that also like in Israel? Uh, uh, you know, I mean, that's a generalization, but I, I think it's fairly accurate. Uh, and that is, uh, I mean, there are many, many exceptions. I, mean, I can give you many exceptions, but, but as a general rule, people who are uh, religiously conservative tend to be politically conservative. 
by conservative I mean people yeah, yeah, who are, yeah. Yeah. and people who are more modern and liberal in their religious even orthodoxy and certainly conservative reform movements uh, tend to be more liberal. See, Jews classically have been liberal, but, but they've been liberal in the FDR sense, meaning FDR liberalism, which is old-fashioned liberalism, mm-hmm. uh, was about helping the poor and social, and, and, uh, social, you know, social welfare. And Jews are in favor, were in favor of that because that goes back to tzedakah and everything else. Right. But the new liberalism is about lifestyle, uh, abortion, and gay, gay and transgender rights. In other words, liberal has a different connotation than it had maybe some of your parents if they were in America, you know, they were maybe old-fashioned liberals. Uh, but the new liberalism, some say, is, is, is kind of offensive to traditional family religious values. Okay. So I think that the old-fashioned liberal, you would find many, many religious uh, Jews who were okay. old-fashioned liberals. And they were in favor of civil rights and things like that. But kind of the new, uh, the new liberal agenda... Uh, many feel, especially when that's added to the anti-Israel aspect of it too, right? Uh, BDS and all that other stuff. So yeah, you'll you'll find a lot of. Um, and it's pro- it's not just Jews, know. like like really heavy Christians. Oh sure, fundamentalist Christians, fundamentalist Christians it's are so surely uh, politically very conservative. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I'll tell you one thing about this. It is said that uh, and again, I don't want to prove things from polls, but but they they have a poll that um, that. Uh, Conservative, politically conservative people actually give more personal charity than liberal. Meaning, the liberals want the government to give give the programs, but they don't necessarily take money out of their pocket. You know, and a lot of political conservatives are very, very charitable in their personal lives, even though they don't want the government to uh, get into it. Yeah. So I understand that religious Jews wouldn't want abortions for themselves because of the Torah, but wouldn't they? want the ability for others who know that they won't be able to take care of their child to not... Yeah, so, so here... here so this, yeah, I understand. That, that, that's certainly a, a logical position. But the problem is, you see, once you posit the double code, the, the, the Jewish code for Jews and the Noahide code for Gentiles, and then you assume that we have a mission to kind of promulgate... The is, it, is it in the Noahide code to not have sex before marriage? Uh, no, that, that not per se, but, but, but there is a law against abortion, you know, so you wouldn't be able to abort. Now, here's, here's a, thing, a very important point. You know, there's a joke they make about the pro-life movement, which is kind of funny, although I, I am more or less a pro-lifer philosophically, but it's a nice joke. They say the problem with the pro-life movement is they believe... Life begins at conception yeah. and ends at birth. Think about that for a moment. It's actually, it's actually very funny, meaning they don't care about kids who are born. They don't want to help kids that are born. They just care about fetuses. So life begins at conception. Once you're born, you know, what happens? That, yeah, yeah. We don't care about that anymore. Now, that, that, that's identifying a real problem, meaning to say if you're going to be against abortion, you can't just leave single mothers with kids they have to raise under impossible conditions. Mm -hmm. You have to couple, if you're anti-abortion, you have a responsibility to be an advocate uh, for children, for single mothers, to provide economic safety nets, to provide uh, adoption alternatives, to provide family counseling. So you're right. Just to say to a woman, you know, you have to bear this kid, you know, and uh, it's your responsibility. 
That would be cruel. But there are, there are ways in which you can create a whole system where this is doable. I mean, even Hillary Clinton, who obviously is a, a pro-choice person, said abortion should be safe, legal, and, and rare. She actually used that word, and rare. Which means we're not calling, I mean, I mean not we, I mean, even a, a responsible pro-choice person should not be calling for, oh, abortion, let's, let's keep on doing it and doing it and doing it. Right. I mean, you try to create alternatives. So even if we have an anti-abortion uh, advocacy on some level, it has to be coupled with uh, you know, taking care of, of children. You can't abandon, abandon children. Mm. And there are some good organizations that focus on this. Uh, within the Jewish community, you may have heard of an organization. It has a website, In Shifra's Arms. I heard that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which uh, actually helps. It counsels. It does not... I mean, philosophically, they're against abortion, but, but technically they work with the woman's decision. If she makes a decision, it's her decision. Mm -hmm. But they try to make her aware of alternatives. Just aware. It's an educational uh, uh, kind of approach that combines financial assistance and therapeutic assistance and medical assistance so that people should be aware of a range of possibilities and then they can make an informed decision. Yeah. So you said ultimately Jews, like not... For sure, but mostly, like, Judaism leans towards against abortion. I, 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 yeah, I, mean, I think that's a fair statement. I mean, we're fairly liberal in what is called a life-threatening situation. We recognize right. that life-threatening can include psychological trauma. It can include anxiety, include stress, meaning it's not just okay. a physical thing like you get a heart attack. So, so we are fairly understanding that uh, life-threatening can encompass a very wide range of conditions. Mm -hmm. But bottom line is that if it's not a life-threatening situation, we would generally be against it. What about Sorry, what if it's life-threatening for the kid? That's also the same, isn't it? Well, <laughs> I don't want to be I don't want to be flippant, but uh, abortion is also life-threatening for the kid. When you say, when you say if you but don't you, abort, well, if it's life-threatening where it's gonna make the kid grow up in a terrible environment like the foster system or like with a drug addict mom. You know, it's 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 a re it's a real it's a real hard question, but I, I think the the philosophy of Judaism is that in life there is potential, and in death there is no potential. Meaning to say, yeah, the kid may have a very tough, rough, difficult life, and as I said before, we should try to make that better. But the truth of the matter is, uh, there are people who have emerged even from those environments, and and they have been productive, and they have accomplished things. So I think we basically say that even that type of difficult life has a, a greater potential than simply taking away that life. Yeah, I'm sorry, yeah. yeah. Um, I just, not that we have to appease people as Jews, but I think that, I'm, I live in New York, right? So it's a very liberal state. And I think that if, if a Chabad person were to stand up and say that the Chabad community is against abortions or we're pro like the conservative choices of, of abolishing abortions in New York, then Jews would be looked at. And I know that we're not to appease people, but as a very close-minded sect and like almost heretic, like... No, you're 100% you're correct, and I, I, I should have explained this a little bit. Um, I was not suggesting under any definition that Jews identifying themselves as Jews should make some speech about, hey, you know, under the Noahide law, you're not supposed to do abortions. And that's, that's not going to carry very much. 
But all I'm saying is that, you know, people form coalitions and, uh, you know, I'm not saying Chabad should make a speech, no, but, but, just, but in like terms of what political coalitions should I support right, right. in this endeavor, and, you know, as I say, halakhically it might be proper to support uh, restrictions on abortion, uh, but, but you're correct. I mean, uh, there are some Jews yeah. that are, like, very activists, like they do TED Talks and they're very... And they don't give a good name to Jews when they stand up and they say that all Jews should be against. Yeah, I, 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 th- I think you do have a point. I mean, that, that's an important point. I mean, maybe some people disagree, but uh, I don't think uh, Jews as Jews, as people is one thing, should necessarily take a high profile on very controversial social issues. Uh, we still live in a world of anti-Semitism, and uh, Jews don't have to be so conspicuous as advocates for one thing or the other. Right. That, that's true. Yeah. Okay, going back to the uh, like the majority it is like against. Yeah. What about in terms of what if the woman was raped and got pregnant? Okay, that's that's an excellent question. So here's the thing. You often hear from pro-life people something like I'm against abortion except in case of rape or incest. Maybe that's an, that's a common refrain, although some are not some are not in favor even then, but you know, often people will say that. Now, if you think about that, that's not so logical because would you say the same thing about a born infant? Meaning, if, you, if you're a pro-lifer and you believe life begins at conception, mm-hmm. then how can you say, I can abort rape or incest? That's like saying I can kill a baby, uh, rape or incest, right? I mean, so halacha does not have a rape or incest exception per se. But halacha does have mother's life in danger exception. So halacha might say, that if the circumstances of the conception were so traumatic, yeah, okay, so deeply emotionally scarring, that to be forced to carry this baby like could mentally, really be okay. a mental breakdown, so we would assimilate rape or incest cases as part of a larger category. And it would be okay to abort in, 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 in some cases. It would depend on the woman, right? right? Because. Yeah, this is called, by the way, the Hebrew, many of you know this, called pikuach nefesh. Pikuach nefesh just means a phrase, mother's life or someone's life is in danger. We know, for example, we desecrate Shabbat when someone's life is in danger. In fact, I shouldn't even call it desecrate. It's not desecrate. It's what you're supposed to do. So abortion is permitted under those circumstances. So So we don't have rape or incest exception. We have threatening mother life exception, and this could be analyzed. Okay. Under that category. Yeah. I'm sorry. No. Um, if the Jewish community is so open to having everyone having their own opinions, yeah. at least from my experience, <laughs> yeah. why would they, why wouldn't they just choose to let anyone choose, like, choose whether or not to have an abortion and then just they decide for themselves? So, yeah, so, so listen, I mean, I mean, there's a general rule, you know, we, we like debate, we like freedom, we, we like to have everyone have their own opinions, you know, even within Judaism, that's, that's the way it often works. The problem ultimately comes back to this wall, which really, um, and I haven't shown you it inside yet, this idea that there's a Noahide code and we have an obligation to promote the Noahide code. Uh, so, by definition, therefore, the Noahide Code would be kind of the outer borders of you know what is debatable, what is not debatable. Meaning that that's going to be the problem. Now, one could argue that maybe when Maimonides writes, we have an obligation to promote the Noahide Code. 
He means by education and by persuasion, but not by using the coercive powers of the law. That, 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 that's a possible reading. That is a possible reading. That uh, you don't use legislation because that backfires on you with resentment. Right, that, that, that's a possible point. But all I'm saying is we can't be totally indifferent to abortions even in the secular world, even in the non-Jewish world because of the Noahide, Noahide obligation. Okay, so abortion might be the uh, single most uh, vivid example of Noahide law yeah. in terms of how we relate to it and, and, and the like. Uh, be it as it may, we should uh, say to Hillen for uh, Justice Kavanaugh, you know, they, uh, he, shouldn't, uh, he doesn't deserve to die over this for sure. And uh, hopefully uh, everybody should be, should be safe, Jews, non-Jews, the born and the unborn. Okay. Okay, we'll stop here. Have a really good week and uh, Thank you so much. Enjoy.